This is Cleantech Talk, Cleantechnica's podcast series interviewing cleantech leaders from around the world. This episode is being sponsored by Pono Home. Hello, cleantech enthusiasts. My name is Scott Cooney, and my company has done energy and water efficiency retrofits for more than 13,000 homes and small businesses, saving our customers more than $3 million a year on their electric and water bills, while also reducing more than 11 million pounds of carbon pollution per year. Would you like to start offering this type of service in your community and do it for a living, make money? You can. Check out homeefficiency.com for more info. We do flat fee consulting to help you get started with our model training you, giving the inventory, tools, software, and support you'll need. No royalties, no hidden fees, no sneaky add-ons. You can just get started. Ready to work with your hands and make a difference every day? Do it. Go to homeefficiency.com. Zach Shahan sits down with Mike Bernard for another episode of Clean Tech Talk. Mike is the chief strategist of TFIE Strategy Incorporated and a regular Clean Technica contributor. Mike will be co-hosting a number of Clean Tech talks in the future, so stay tuned for more updates. We're here with Mike Bernard for another episode of Clean Tech Talk. Mike, we're going to talk about presidential candidates again, Democratic presidential candidates in the primaries and their climate and energy plans. Uh, but maybe just to lead into that quickly, I guess uh, for anyone just, just joining us, maybe a little bit of background on what you've done with regard to uh, these, these nominees for Clean Technica. Sure. Um, you know, thanks for having me back, Zach. I'm, I'm feeling like I'm a bit monopolizing Clean Tech Talk right now, but you know, next month we'll be talking to Michael Mann, which will be awesome. Uh, so I'm looking forward to that. And, uh, you know, hopefully I'll end up talking to Mark Zed Jacobson next year as well. But from the perspective of the Democratic candidates for election 2020, uh, Zach and I talked about it. And I started digging into their climate change plans for Clean Technica. Um, I went through uh, most of the leading candidates and uh, Andrew Yang's as well, because he's just an interesting oddball candidate. And I'd uh, done some work in the past uh, for Clean Technica around uh, universal basic income, which is one of his, which is his signature cam- uh, signature campaign platform. So, in, in context of all this, I looked at Harris, Biden, Yang, uh, Warren, uh, Sanders, and I feel like I'm missing one, and Buttigieg, of course, uh, one of the subjects for today. And then I did a ranking across various things. And you know, so that's all available on, on Clean Technica, and we've talked about that before. But this, this discussion today is about you know, kind of three of the presidential candidates. You know, we're going to say goodbye to Kamala Harris, and we're going to say, you're not really welcome to Mike Bloomberg. <laughs> and then we're going to talk some more substantively about Buttigieg's piece. So let's, let's start with Kamala. I mean, uh, Zach... You know, I think you had a couple of questions, so why don't you, you know, prime the pump, and uh, I'll, I'll take well, it. Well, well, I found it interesting. You know, when we were planning for this podcast, you know that 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 was that she had the top ranking plan in your system, uh, and I thought that was uh, well. The 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 main thing that crossed my mind is politics and policy are to- totally different things, and uh, this is something I think I picked up from David Roberts when he used to write on Grist. Now he writes on Vox. And um, just the idea that actually the vast majority of people don't delve into policy. <laughs> they, don't, they don't really look very carefully at the policies and 
what those might mean. Uh, whereas so much of it is this kind of horse race discussion about who's leading, why, their favorability, their likability, their, you know, whether they had a moment or not, you know, whether they're having a momentum, you know, all this kind of sort of nonsense about like personalities. But that's really what that's what people get. That's what gets covered in the media. That's what people pay attention to apparently a lot. Um, and I, I don't know. I, I mean, I think for various reasons she just never really connected or, or hit, you know, got a big uh, fan base. Uh, like, you know, you can see from, from Yang or, or Buttigieg or, or uh, of course it's the front runners. Um, and I think there's a you know long discussion we could have about that, that I don't really think that we want to go into here today, but, um, but it is just striking that, you know, climate is one of the top, top, top focuses of democratic voters she had the best climate and energy plan as far as we could tell and she's out because she just couldn't couldn't make it through anymore with funding uh, so what what are your thoughts on i guess if you have thoughts on on why she's departed so early if you want to share that or um or maybe about her energy and climate plans and and what you think might be carried forward or or you know get transferred to other other candidates perhaps Sure. I mean, I'm a terrible horse race guy. I'm much more nerdy and wonky about the policy and how saleable the policy is to which segments of the population more than the candidate themselves. I, I, I'm, I'll just, you know, from Kamala Harris's perspective, I mourn her departure. Um, as you said, under my analysis, she has the best climate plan. Um, it was the best coverage. It was the best articulated. It had the clearest levers. It had the clearest dates and targets. And moreover, it was the most presidential and statesmanlike. Um, her constant theme was pointing to existing draft legislation and initiatives and naming the existing Democratic uh, leaders who were responsible for them and saying we would use um, for example, Elizabeth Warren's legislation for inclusion of climate risk in SEC prospectus and other filings. Um, other other candidates are it's all about them. For her, she was attempting to create a broad coalition of power so that as soon as she became president, she'd already have established the linkages and being given to credit to other people, which I thought was um, a tremendous change in a fairly a fairly egotistical and personality-driven race. Um, so I, I, I kind of miss her for that perspective. Um, that said, I, I think that there's room for uh, some additional work to be done to pull, pull things together. The other thing I'll say about her is, you know, one of the compare and contrasts that I made was between her approach to taking legal action against polluters versus what I would characterize as uh, Bernie Sanders' populist language about persecuting the oil and gas industry and the coal industry. Hmm. Um, Bernie went beyond the mm -hmm. sensible language um, about saying we have to shut these down and you know we have to ensure that we um, manage pollution appropriately and we have to punish polluters through the force of the law to making it clear that he was demonizing legal industries and the people in them and I just didn't find that sat well um, with me. Mm -hmm. Kamala Harris is, was, I think, the right balance. And yes. obviously, it leaned into her California experience with, um, you know, 
prosecuting polluters in California. Yeah, the, the Sanders language is extremely popular and common with uh, hardcore climate activists. Uh, it's so much so that it's sort of seen as the, the norm, it's normalized, it's, it's what you expect. Uh, whereas, you know, the, you know, what I constantly, <laughs> more and more like constantly sort of focus on is those kind of middle voters, the ones uh, critical to winning the, the swing states in um, a number of number of places. And, uh, you know, I, I don't think, <laughs> I think what you're pointing out is that really is not the right kind of language or campaign for, for those kind of uh, voters. Um, it's not going to really roll very well or, or very persuasively with them. Whereas Kamala Harris had a, had a very clean, you know, uh, sensible uh, approach that, you know, that anyone can, uh, can agree with basically. And you see poll after poll, people agree you should, you know, cut pollution and, and incentivize clean energy and that kind of thing. Yeah, I think we could talk about Kamala Harris all day long. She, I really well, I do want to say one more thing about her, though, which is mm -hmm. that, you know, as we look at her and as we look at what her capabilities are, there, there are kind of, well, two things. The first thing is that of the people who weren't Washington-based, she showed the greatest sense of governance as president in Washington. Mm -hmm. So I'll compare and contrast her to Andrew Yang. Andrew Yang shows absolutely no evidence that he has anybody on his team who's ever been to Washington. <laughs> um, you're going to piss off some of our writers, but, but no, I, I mean, I think they might like that actually. I mean, a lot of his supporters might, might like that, that comment. They, they, they think that's good, but that's not good. Yeah. And you know, so I, I look at that and I say, good on her. She did her homework. She had got the right advisors, got the right team. And it's a pity. Um, yeah, that's what so I was going to well, based off what you said earlier, I was just going to add, I was going to say something similar that she's got a very, she's got this very incisive prosecutorial approach to, you know, find the, the key point and find out how to make it, you know, how to make it, how to make it, how to implement, how to make it work. You know, she's got this very keen uh, mind, which obviously, you know, helps her rise to the to number two position in the country for, for justice uh, as, as head of uh, attorney general of California and as a senator. And she really, the way you laid it out with her climate energy plans, she really used that kind of keen approach, keen mind and incisive kind of approach to, to have a plan that would actually do stuff that would implement really good policies. And um, uh, yeah, you're making me a little depressed. <laughs> <laughs> last, last point about Kamala Harris, then we'll move on, is the question is, could she reappear as VP? Um, so there's Kind of when I think about the VP pairing, I think about three or four factors. One is, are they appealing to a demographic that the primary candidate, the presidential candidate, doesn't appeal to? Do they provide balance um, in terms of progressive, non-progressive, uh, gender, race, ethnicity, to give a balanced thing so that as proxy during the campaign, the uh, vice presidential candidate can be zooming into areas where they will be better received than the presidential candidate will be. And people who need to have a balance on a ticket in order to vote will do it. I mean, and we look at Biden, he's leaning into his Obama years, understandably. But you've got to wonder why, gee, this very conservative, old, white guy who's hard to distinguish from Mitt Romney was selected as Obama's running mate in 2008. You know, and you kind of look at that and go, gee, what does he bring that Obama didn't have on his ticket? Um, old white conservative Democrat. 
Uh, although Obama, as I've assessed, you know, recently, and including in some of the stuff for Clean Technica, was actually remarkably conservative as well. Yeah. Was in- well, I think that, well, that I mean, that's another thing when you talk about policy versus politics. He had this very progressive kind of change uh, platform politically, but he was actually fairly quite conservative. I mean, he was very progressive, maybe on a couple of things, but he was um, he was pretty much a moderate. To, to conservative Democrat in a lot of ways. And, you know, that had maybe, I guess, pros and cons that maybe opened him up to some more um, middle ground voters also ended up really disillusioning a lot of his early supporters. And, and I think it cost the Democratic Party quite a bit. But that's, yeah, look, we can maybe come back, come back to that. But we'll come jump into, that. you know, basically that leads us well into Bloomberg, who is yep. uh, basically a former Republican who uh, who is now you know basically decided it seems he's going to skip early early campaigning and just throw a ton of money into advertising tens of millions of dollars like no one else can do because he's a super billionaire not a fake billionaire like uh, Trump seems to be but a real billionaire and um, and then he's just going to like go full blast full court press to Super Tuesday California everything to try to sort of uh, take over. And I think he's presuming some stumbles from Joe Biden and, and uh, that, that, that that'll open the door for him a bit. But, uh, but it's fascinating I, that he's former Republican, but he had very, he's had very strong climate and health and gun policies, like, like very far left. I think he's like, he's very committed to these topics. And these are top, top topics for Democrats. So Whereas he might have economically more of a Republican kind of conservative background, he's extremely strong on three top matters for, or two, two to three top matters for, for Democrats. But what's your, what's your take on all of that? Well, I, I like to say that, you know, there's two paths that Republicans have taken over the past 20 years. One path, um, and, and mayors of New York are actually representative of both of those paths. So on one hand, we have Giuliani, who appeared to rise to the occasion of 9-11 and got a lot of credibility for that, and it kind of masked a lot of his failings. But subsequently, he's just driven deep into, he's fallen through the looking glass into the far-right propaganda mill and Trump republicanism. Um, On the other hand, we have the Bloomberg model of Republican, who is urban who looks at the divergence of the Republican Party from observable reality and says, I, I can't be a Republican anymore. And you know what? When I was mayor, I, I had to deal with Donald Trump. I know exactly who this guy is, and he's not fit to be president. And I live in, a, in, a, in New York, and we dealt with the aftermath of Superstorm Sandy when our subways were flooded by seawater from sea level rise surge that was outside of anything we expected. Um, and so he's a, um, an urban conservative who is a business person and a billionaire, as you point out, um, but he's empirically oriented and reality oriented, and he just refused to get on the, the train in the Republican Party that was steaming further and further away from reality for the past 20 years. And good on him, but I'm going to say a few things. Um, first, Gee, do we need another billionaire, foe or not, old white guy from New York 
as president of the United States. I think those are the only people who can be president. <laughs> Just throwing some sarcasm in there. And I, I know. It's, it's obviously. But, you know, where is the ego that drives these people to think, yeah, I, I was, you know, I did a couple of things, but I have no federal governance experience. And there are people with tremendous skill and competence who know these quarters of power. They know how to get things to, to have how the governance works. They have strong um, bipartisan relationships. They have tremendous value. I'm just going to throw my hat in the ring and buy the presidency. After all, if Donald Trump could do it, I can do it too. It's just bizarre. Um, I, I dislike it. I mean, I like Bloomberg in his post-Republican incarnation. Oh, and that's the other thing. Floor-crossing people going back and forth between them and then throwing their hat in. It's not say, like that, say that again? Party. It's I'm not like the Republican Party 20 years ago was such so much closer to the Democratic Party of today. I'm not sure if I caught... What did, what did you say well, about crossing? Well, he's crossed the floor, right? It's like he was a Republican, now he's a Democrat. Yeah, yeah, but, uh, but you were just saying in general that, that about that happening. Well, uh, Trump did that too. He was a Democrat, now he's a Republican. Right. Right. <laughs> I mean, one of those ways is a sensible way. I, I no dispute on this because yeah. one party is diverging from reality, or at least is refusing to move with reality as it shifts. You know, I, I'm not sure we talked about the manifesto project on these. I think we must have at some point. But what it showed was that the 2008 Democratic campaign promises, the Obama Biden promises we're about as far right as the Democratic Party ever got compared to the median of Western democracies. Yeah. They're quite a long way. And then they tacked back in 2012, and then Clinton, with Sanders driving her to the center, uh, tacked back to a barely center-left set of campaign promises compared to mm -hmm. um, the you know, Western democracies. But Biden, Biden is over there on the right. Um, if we think about where Warren is and where Sanders is, by the standards of Western democracies, Warren is centrist. She's talking about reg her, her signature policy more than anything else is the wonky promise from a climate perspective is the wonky promise to put climate risk, fiscal climate risk in SEC prospectus filings for Wall Street. No matter how she sells it, that's what the policy is. That is not out of line for any Western democracy. It's just normal stuff, um, including and Sanders. Sanders is barely center left by the standards of Western democracies. It's only in the United States it has this skewed political culture that is so skewed right. But Biden and Bill Gates as well recently, I'm not sure, we'll, we'll talk about him very briefly in terms of billionaires who need to change their behavior somewhat. Um, <laughs> but, but as far as I can tell, Bloomberg is in there partly because Everybody on Wall Street is afraid of Warren, and some of that is just rhetoric. But her policies are really not business unfriendly; they're just sensible. Yeah. Sanders Sanders policies are unfriendly to utilities and to the oil and gas industry. Some of that's populism, and some of that's um, policy choices. Um, but and I think I think Sanders is a bit more of a wild card for people too, because he 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 does use he demonizes and his he uses very sort of black and white. Those guys are bad, uh, and probably you know it's a bit populism. of a bit of a wild card. What he would do, maybe, but uh, but no, I I, I mean I, I want to get into details, but the thing, but I always I'm always really 
keen on uh, focusing on context and you did a great job of that there. I, I think um, a common way it's, fra- it's framed is that Bill Clinton moved the Democratic Party quite uh, center or quite to the right, I should say, uh, basically out of a sense that he had to to win and and that seemed to work with him and the, the Democratic, you know, I don't think politicians evolve all that quickly and they have it as kind of like they have, they got in this kind of uh, system of thinking that they had to appeal to conservative philosophy to win. And I think Trump has shown pretty clearly that there's, there's actually no really deep ideology in the in the in the base of voters, it's really uh, they they vote much less on on very strict, clear academic uh, ideology than they do on personalities and, and talking points. And um, well, except for the but, white evangelicals, they were right. very specifically doing a deal with the devil. Um, regardless of what they say, Trump is more the antichrist than the second coming. Mm-hmm. Um, and the deal that they made was conservative judges. Yeah. Um, and the point I think I made in the, one of the last conversations we had was uh, they won that one. Yeah. The and the Supreme Court I mean, was conservative. I, mean, I saw something uh, even uh, yesterday, I think, that Mitch McConnell basically doesn't do anything with legislation, almost just constantly focused on getting more judges uh, approved and more judges appointed. Um, and that's his, his, his big focus as conservative judges. But, but this whole thing, this whole idea that the Democratic Party had to appeal to the right, I think is, has been a, <laughs> I think it's just, I think it's poor politicking as far as, I mean, I think it's like they psych themselves out. They're like trying, they're sort of uh, thinking, be, they're overthinking things. Um, and I think well, there's yeah. way, too, way too much of a focus on con- appealing to the right or the center or whatever they think than just have, being good at messaging what you believe in. And, uh, and obviously, I think, you know, AOC, Sanders, uh, Warren, to an extent, they've brought this kind of idea back that they should fight for what they believe in and stop trying to, you know, pretend they believe in something else or, or not really having a strong conviction of what they believe in. And, they, you know, much more of a focus on FDR kind of policies or European type of policies that, that Democratic voters support, but they've like been, many have been ashamed to say they've support or, or uh, and of course there are people like, you know, there are people like, for, for, you know, some big names like Joe Scarborough or whatever, who, who just don't want to be in the Republican Party because they see what a disaster it is for the country and for, for democracy, for so many things. Yet they are, they believe in conservative ideology. They don't want to, they don't believe in, in, uh, you know, the liberal ideology. So, so it's like they want the democratic party to be basically the, the Republican party of old. And, um, so there's this push and and pull on that matter. But, but with, uh, yeah, with regards to, to Bloomberg, um, do you want to, say more about his climate and energy uh, stance and, and what kind of policies you would expect from him based on what he did in New York City or, or elsewhere. Uh, I think, I mean, I think from my perspective, he's very, he likes to have very strong, like very outside what people say is okay, strong kind of policies to imp- on topics he cares a lot about, but I don't know what that would mean. Yeah, frankly, I haven't gotten past being annoyed at him enough to dig into his any policy statements he might have produced and i haven't seen a lot of policy announcements from him you know so i am sure that now that he's in the race you know one of the things i'll do in the next month or so uh, is if he has a climate change plan dig into it i know it's a it's a file for him he cares about it he's on the right side of 
history and science. And, you know, it's a, an important thing for the Democratic Party. It's a strong differentiator. As we discussed one of the last two times we talked, the, you know, if the Republican Party pivots before 2020 and comes up with a climate action plan, it'll be much weaker than the Democratic plan, and the Democrats will look better by comparison regardless. Um, second thing is that Florida, with its 1.6 million re-enfranchised former felons, people who've paid their debt to society, as is common in the rest of Western democracies, they're able to vote in, that, in the 2020 election, and Florida's a swing state with its 29 electoral college votes. So yeah, they're, they're already they're trying to they've been trying to sort of <laughs> take that back in some. You know, yeah, I, I like to call it re-disenfranchisement. There's, I think that's so, the term that's being bandied about. So ridiculous. But with Bloomberg, I, I mean, uh, I mean, even after leaving uh, his job as mayor of New York, he he really put a lot into climate and health topics, and I believe he was a top funder main funder of the beyond coal campaign through sierra club that uh, worked really hard to to retire coal plants sooner uh but i i you know i i have sort of the hunch that he's just gonna follow the trump model of not really saying anything not really putting much detail out there just sort of winning on messaging and and advertising a lot and uh we'll see you know I, but i'm i would not be surprised if he doesn't roll out any really specific plans i don't know it seems like he's trying to uh, and it's just it's hilarious that i mean it's hilarious and horrible that you know you have sanders and warren trying to make a very strong making a very strong case for why this the whole system in the country is uh, is unfair and unbalanced and getting disastrous then another billionaire second billionaire comes into the race to just basically proves their point and makes their case that much stronger. I don't know how many more voters that wins over. I don't know how much they can expand into the Biden, Bloomberg, Buttigieg base, but um, it certainly makes their their supporters much more passionate and convicted that the whole system is, is not fair. Yeah, one thing I'd, I, I want to touch on is just right now, there's this really weird thing. I just published something this morning on this, which is there's this big thing on the right that Warren and Sanders and AOC and the Green New Deal are communism, like past socialism. They believe in many cases the rhetoric is that they will institute communism. And when they say communism, they mean Stalinism. And they're asserting that you'll end up with Stalin, Stalinist death camps and um, uh, you know, genocide and, and, and famines in the United States. And it's so divorced from reality. There's, there's the first thing is, of course, that we're you know Mao and Stalin's excesses were decades ago. Stalin's reign ended in 1951, I think. Mao's in died in 73 or something. You know, it's a long time ago. The the Soviet Union fell in 89, 30 years ago, and it had already started trying to capitalize. China has capitalized, has become a capitalist society with a modicum of central planning. I think it was Mark Carney um, or somebody who said, China's actually a fairly democratic place now. It just has a different way of being democratic. You know, but at the same time, on the right, we have this rhetoric that the United States is not a democracy, and that's what it's supposed to be. They're calling it a republic. I have a theory, and it's a, it's a lightweight theory, so we'll, we'll, you know, it's suitable for podcast blurbing. Um, so my theory is that Republicans know that and the Republican strategists know they can't win in a democracy. They must 
use undemocratic approaches to maintain power. That can be voter suppression. That can be, you know, after a democratic governor wins the election, but before he or she is able to take office, removing all authority from the, the office of the governor. That can be disenfranchisement, outright disenfranchisement of citizens against the wishes of the majority. And that can be, you know, leveraging and gaming the electoral college to maximize the opportunity for the Republicans to win a majority of power with a tiny minority of, of seats. And the way I look at this is they understand the demographics are not in their favor. Um, and you, know, you see that in the terror that they express around immigration, around the increase of non-white people in, as a percentage of the population. They're, they're, you know, the same stuff that in the, you know, the Muslim tide of brown people who will um, eat, you know, become a majority and then impose Sharia law on white people white Christians. All these forms of terror are a reflection that they know that democracy is not their friend because white supremacists aren't a majority and never will be again. And yeah, I, think, I think, I mean, I think there's, I've actually had an article drafted for, for months. Uh, I think this is why the Republican party is going crazy and it's basically, or is acting crazy because they're, they're, I mean, like you said, they have to either, they have to basically cheat at every level to retain power because they're just losing more and more uh, popular influence and, and support. Uh, but I, I think one concern, which you, you said in other words, is a kind of fear of tyranny of the majority or, to, or mob, mob tyranny. And it's just, it, it like, it, it is a big cognitive dissonance for me because what we have is sort of a tyranny of the minority. <laughs> we have this like completely divorced from reality kind of uh, Trump world that is wreaking havoc on the rest of the country and our whole system of governance as they basically destroy the system because they to try to retain power or, or gain power. And it's like, uh, I don't see how that's not visible. But I sat next to a couple of Trump supporters uh, at a coffee shop yesterday and tried to work, but I was just listening to them and like trying not to cut into a conversation and trying to not to have my head explode because it's just so much is divorced from reality. So much is obviously like they absorb talking points that mislead them and they go on about them with passion. Like that's the truth. And it's like, I just, I, it's really hard to see how we overcome that without a better system of conveying information and, and checking information. But I, I, don't, I don't really know. Yeah, a big thread of my writing in, you know, about politics in the United States and in Canada where I live is over the past while is is my fervent desire that conservatives take back their parties, drag them kicking and screaming into the 21st century, accept and preserve the progress that has been made for the past 50 to 60 years, be cautious about new progress as is a conservative trait, and present conservative policy options for the major issues of our time, such as climate change. Inveighing against the rise of communism is fighting a battle from the 1960s. Yeah, I like, I like your pitch very much. I think that's the, that sounds like the best hope we could have, you know, but it's uh, they have obviously... Unfortunately, Unfortunately, yeah. it requires nuanced communication. And, and this gets back to something, before we move to Buttigieg, Buttigieg because we have to get to him, mm-hmm. the nuanced communication is the challenge right now. 
politics requires simple messages repeated often, a, a sense of authenticity. And one of the key things I'll say is that the United States, the average citizen, when polled, here's some statements that I'll make. The vast majority of people in the United States, when asked about specific gun control measures like background checks, want them. The vast majority of people, when polled, regardless of, of political affiliation, want women to have access to abortions. The vast majority of people, when polled, want freedom of religion and freedom from religion. The vast majority of people, when polled, want action on the human causes of climate change. 69% at the end of 2018 per Monmouth polling. Like 66, 69% is over two-thirds of Americans want action on the human causes of climate change. So you'd think... Yeah, the vast majority want, want a government support of clean energy. The vast majority yeah. want, want government uh, protection of, of, our, of our air and water. And it's, uh, it's, yeah, it's really one thing after another. And uh, I think and you these said are earlier, all Democratic Party. Yeah policies and yet trump is the president and one of the houses of congress is republican yeah it's a significant disparity between what people want and what they're led to vote for and i think one problem is you had these more sensible republicans in touch with reality and they flirted and i think as they flirted with the devil they danced with the devil and they they basically uh, the devil took over, you know, like basically they lost control. They thought they were doing something to, you know, have political power and, but they weren't, you know, going to go too far down that road. And then that kind of extreme detached from reality portion of the party took over. And then Trump rose up on that and is a full embodiment of it. And I mean, we see the, we see, we see it every day with his complete like conspiracy theories, nonsense, uh, you know, basic destruction of our U.S. Uh, rep <laughs> representative republic, the democratic uh, systems. And um, yeah, anyway, I, th I think what you laid out, you know, uh, conservatives have to take it back. And the thing is, they sort of tried, they tried to fight off the never Trumpers, tried to fight off Trump, but they just lost on messaging, lost on everything. And, uh, and now they're basically like in this limbo world where they either have to fight from within where they're losing and getting beaten down or leave the party and hope that that's going lead to lead to something. But anyway, let's move on to Buttigieg. Thank you for listening to Clean Tech Talk. Join us next time to get your electric fix. If you would like to sponsor our podcast, drop us a note. We are looking for more clean tech leaders to highlight on a regular basis as we fund a clean tech talk.